A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by an anonymous listener as a schus for all those in Klal Yisrael who need a Yeshua. So, before we get to today's episode, I uh, just wanted to remind the listeners that I'm coming for a trip to the United States, the New York area, the last week of July, probably about July 26th to August through August 1st. Um, lecture slots are filling up quickly, and I still have a couple of openings left, um, so be in touch with me about that if your community or shul or bungalow colony or whatever it is would like, um, you know, to have some interesting historical uh, lecture during that week. It's around the three weeks, nine days. It's a time of year when people are actually interested in these stuff. I will be having a public cemetery tour of the Mount Judah Cemetery in Queens, where a lot of great uh, tzaddikim and loads of Jewish history is. Um, it's a very historic place. I'm not sure yet. I'm going to um, publicize that exactly when I figured out the day. It's probably going to be either Friday, July 29th, or Sunday afternoon, later afternoon on July 31st. Maybe both, or perhaps another day as well. I might have two, um, a, because a lot of listeners expressed interest in participating in that. So I'm still finalizing that and will publicize the details as soon as I have them. Um I'm also launching a new series on the podcast next week, um, so key, stay tuned for that. Um, this is going to be about Jews saving Jews uh, uh, during the Holocaust. On one hand, saving during the Holocaust is not really the major story, unfortunately, because very few are saved. The major story is what happened to the overwhelming majority in the process of, of uh, what took place in the ghettos and the death camps and gas chambers and killing sites, um, and how uh, um, the the uh, that story was. But as human beings, we have this need to try to seek out the brighter stories amidst tragedy. So we tend to focus on the few stories where uh, attempts were made to save them. So when when we talk about Hatzalah, about saving Jews during the Holocaust, primarily most um, narratives focus on either non-Jews saving Jews at risk to their own life, chassidei umot olam, right, righteous among the nations, or 
um, which are great stories, or Jews, Jewish communities on the outside, outside of Nazi-occupied Europe, uh, saving Jews on the inside, stories about um, the joint or, or, or in, in different diplomats or in Switzerland or in Turkey or, you know, Sternbuch and Rene Reichman, the Varhat Sola in, in New York and, and, and um, the American Jewish Committee and Yaakov Griffel in Turkey and the Yishuv in Palestine. Those are all the stories we're used to. This series that I'm going to be talking about will focus on another story entirely, Jews saving other Jews under Nazi occupation. In other words, both parties, the ones who are saving and the ones who they are saving, um, are both under Nazi occupation. In other words, they're both victims. They're both being chased. They're both um, are part of, ostensibly, from the Nazis' point of view, part of the final solution. That's a very compelling narrative, a very, very interesting story, and, and has gone under the radar for way too long. It's a very important story also. Some of the ones are more famous, the Bielski brothers and the partisans, or the working group in Sla- Slovakia, um, uh, Gysi Fleischmann and Michal Berweismandl and, and, and Oscar Newman, those, those people, those are somewhat famous. But other stories that I'm going to discuss, both of those I will have episodes on um, in this series, but lesser-known ones as well, such as the very unique story of Oswald Rufheisen, or Brother Daniel, in Mir, how he saved Jews in Mir, Gisel, Dr. Gissel Apparel in Auschwitz. Ironically, her story involves abortion, which is in the news lately. Um, the escape from Sobibor story, different activities in France and Belgium, we have really, really incredible stories that are not as famous, but just as heroic and, of course, very, very fascinating and interesting. And I think everyone's going to enjoy it. So in order to get this series off the ground, we're going to need some sponsorships. So please be in touch with me about sponsoring any one of these episodes or any stories of Jews saving Jews during the Holocaust that I mentioned. Um, they are available. Be in touch with me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com. Um, I mentioned that abortions in the in the news a very historic day on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, that's of course related more to U.S. history um, and the process of uh, government intervention into private lives. And we all know how well government intervention into private lives boded well for uh, Jews throughout history. But speaking of which, we probably should do an episode on the Tzitz Eliezer of Eliezer Waldenberg, a great Paisic of the 20th century, a fascinating personality with many historic and pioneering uh, psukim in halacha and many medical halachic issues, including on abortion. So that would be another great story to explore as well at some point. Um, in other news, um, there was a, a just posted yesterday on the Svarim Chatter podcast, an interview with Dr. Ben-Sion Klebanski um, in his book, uh, The Golden Age of Lithuanian Yeshivas. It was translated into English. I read, of course, the Hebrew one, and I use it all the time. It's one of my, my go-to books. It's like my Bible for everything about the Lithuanian Torah world in the interwar period and even a little bit before. Um, it's basically everything I know. In other words, I was very happy that it was in Hebrew, that no one else can read it. And this way I feel special and knowledgeable. And now all you guys can read it. You should all read it. It's a great book, The Golden Age of Lithuanian Yeshivas by Dr. Bensian Klobanski. And if you all read it, then we're all going to be equal in knowledge. There's going to be nothing separating me from any of the listeners because everything I know comes from that book. Um, 
So it's a great interview. You should also listen to the podcast. A great interviewer, as usual. Nachi is an excellent interviewer. And I know Dr. Kublansky personally. I've emailed him. I've met him personally. He's a very special man and has done a great uh, job with that book, um, The Golden Age of the Lithuanian Yeshiva World in the Interwar Period. So, just came back from a trip um, with a family. You know, family trips are very in vogue now. Do family trips explore family histories and roots? And uh, we're in Prague and Hungary, Slovakia, a couple other uh, countries. And while in Prague, the conversation, as it has in the last several trips to Prague, it turns to Shir, Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, the rabbi of Prague, um, the rabbi Maskil of Prague. So... I always think whenever I bring a group to Prague that the conversation is going to revolve around the Maharal of Prague. It's going to revolve around the Neide Behuda of Landau, two very, very important historical figures who dominated Prague life in their eras. And yet all the recent groups I have are all, in, whatever they're all interested is in Shir, Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport and his unique story, and of course the Gailam of Prague. So... So um, the, the, that, that becomes uh, something to talk about. So I decided that this episode will talk about Shir and his story and his place in Jewish history. Um, and, um, and, and, and of course, it's a wider narrative as well. It's not specifically about him. We encounter Shir in the Spanish synagogue or the Spanish temple, which is the Reform Temple in, in, in Prague. Very gorgeous, magnificent building. It's a little bit of a museum in the back and they have this big prominent painting, the famous painting of Shear with his strimal and beard and pais and talus, and yet he's Shear. He's, 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 he's also a maskil. Um, and then also he, we bump into his grave in the new cemetery. We're, of course, going to Revi Landau, the night of Yehuda, but on the way, you pass by Shear. And everyone asks, so oh, what's this? What's this all about? So maybe one day, if we're already going in that direction, maybe one day the groups will be excited to learn about Franz Kafka too, because he's also a story in Prague, especially since we recently, during the uh, pandemic lockdown, we experienced a Kafka-esque situation, at least in Israel we did, um, and all the wonderful regulations the government and the health department and the police had us all under over here. By the way, Kafka is also buried in the new Jewish cemetery in Prague, where the Neide Behuda and Shir are, which, if you think about it, there's this interesting development tracing Prague through the centuries, just looking at those four personalities that I mentioned. Maharal is this medieval Jewish sage, medieval Jewish Prague and its golden age. Then we jump a couple of centuries to the Neide Behuda, Landau, the rabbinic Prague at the beginning of the modern era, a great Paisic. And then we go to Shir, Prague as the center of change, the center of modernity, Haskala, all that. And then Kafka and the generation before the war, he, you know, he passes away from tuberculosis at the age of 40, 1924. He's the generation of assimilation um, and search for Jewish identity in the 20th century. So that's already a whole new level. So it's interesting. Anyway, either way, if we finally get to Shir, Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, born in 1790 and passes away in 1867, a very confusing character of Jewish history, in a certain way defines the journey of Jewish identity in the 19th centuries, from Eastern Europe, travels to Western Europe, comes from the rabbinic world and joins the Haskalah, but doesn't leave Jewish tradition. He's still an observant Jew. In fact, he's still the rabbi. So it's like really confusing. Is he a maskil? Is he a rabbi? Is he observant? Is he secular? Is he Eastern European? Is he Western European? What What is this guy? You know, it's very, uh, 
and 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 really it 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 uh, you know the painting of him the famous painting of him he's got this strimal type of fur hat he's got this talus he's got pais in his in the beard i remember when um Marts, professor martin Wojinski gave a uh, delivered a lecture on uh, the development of hasidic dress so the first slide in in his uh, in his powerpoint was uh, the picture of the nitziv of alajin who's very very far from the world of Hasidim. He's a big Litvak, Rashiva Valajin, and he's wearing this strimal type of hat and has payas and a beard. And, it, and juxtaposed next to him is this picture of Shir, who also has this strimal type of hat with payas and a beard. And he says, Here, neither of these people are Hasidim. One of them is a Rosh Hashiva, a Litvak, and one of them is a Maskil. And yet both of them are wearing what we refer to as the Lavush, the Hasidic dress. So obviously, that's a, you know, that, you know, I think I did an episode on, on Jewish dress, and I discussed this there, um, so you may want to check out that episode, but obviously we have to understand Hasidic dress in context as well. But you see that painting, and you're like, whoa, so this looks like some sort of rabbinic figure. And, but, but, uh, but we know he's also a, a, a masculine, he's part of the Jewish Enlightenment, and, and all that, all those connotations uh, of the 19th century in Galicia and then later in Prague. So the story of Shir is more reflective of a wider narrative of what is Haskalah and what is a maskil. Is it the black and white version that we grew up, many of us grew up with, um, you know, that there's, you know, Haskalah is just another way of saying secularization, or is there a lot of gray area, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of complexities, um, and it's really understanding the 19th century and we don't want to, you know, have this anachronistic view that anything we assume in the 21st century or the 20th century, we throw back to the 19th because the 19th was a very different and very dynamic Jewish situation in the Jewish community um, 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 at that time. Um, because, because the Haskalah is a process and um, the early Haskalah, the early Haskalah were observant Jews, followed halacha, um, came from the rabbinic world, did not change their dress at initially, at least many of them didn't, most of them didn't. And um, they had these views of, of incorporating certain elements from surrounding society to improve the Jewish people. Languages, literature, values, and so on, education, um, um, you know, d- 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 different things like that, which, which is worth discussing, and perhaps we will, uh, in future episodes, but right now we're going to do it through the prism of Shear's life. Um, and it's different in each locality, meaning Shear grows up in in Galicia, in Lvov. He's, he, that's, that's, that's his world. And later on he moves to Prague. And Prague is already much more central Europe. It's much more secular by the time he arrives. He's considered a radical um, masculine, and not radical, he's never considered radical, he's considered a masculine in Galicia, in Prague, he's considered pretty conservative. He's he's he's, uh, he's looked at as as as, as somewhat of, of a more traditionalist in Prague because Prague by the mid nineteenth century had already been very secularized. Um, there's a recent book about him, just published last year. I didn't get a chance to read it yet, so I have not yet read it. It's in Hebrew by Nathan Shifris. It's called Shir Chadash Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport Rabbanut Haskala and Leumiyut Nationalism. But um, so, how do I have a right to, to say an episode about him if I haven't even read the book? 
But since not reading a book has not stopped uh, many a tour guide from relating the narrative on tour, so it won't stop me either on my podcast. Uh, so hopefully what I'll say is not made up. Um, he's born into a rabbinic family, very prominent rabbinic family, the Rappaports, the Kayanim, the famous Meyuchas, with their prestigious lineage. He's born in Lvov, in the new Austrian Galicia. This is following the partitions of Poland that around the time of his birth. It's now Austrian Galicia. That's what he grows up in. And Lvov is a major center of, of, of Eastern Galicia. Um, he's a young budding Torah scholar, initially mainstream. He marries the daughter of Rab Arye Leib Heller, the Ktsay Sachayshin. So this uh, later masculine rabbi is the son-in-law of the Ktsay Sachayshin. Later on, he'd edit comment and publish the Avnei Miluim of his father-in-law and with his own comments, his Hagois, his comments, and his addition with his commentary, not commentary, he has some comments here and there, and his edits are featured in every Avnei Miluim used today and studied intensely in today's yeshivas all around the world. And I'm assuming that most yeshiva students are unaware when they study these Avnei Miluims that they're using uh, the, this Maskil son-in-law's uh, edition of his, his publishing. Either way, in his 20s, um, he begins exploring his intellectual world. And to, to help things along, this is following the passing of his, his father-in-law, the Ktsay So God forbid that he should be a Maskil in his father-in-law's lifetime. Um, and he starts, uh, so he explores his intellectual world and he exhibits what were then considered masculic tendencies in the milieu of Galicia emerging at that time. Primarily, there were three habits that were associated with the early Galician Haskala, and Shear engaged in all three. Number one, medieval Jewish philosophy, such as Meira Nevuchim of the Rambam, but many other works as well. Two, is languages, German, French, others, if we would move uh, further north and further east to the Russian Jewish Haskell, then it would naturally include Russian or Polish. Polish would also be in Austrian Galicia, by the way. Different languages, European languages, sometimes even the ancient classical languages of Greek or Latin. And number three, reading books, being exposed to literature, history, science, general literature. And those are three intellectual engagements that they would uh, 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 incorporate. But more importantly, from a social perspective, uh, he began associate, He began doing two other things that that um, uh, um, uh, uh, um, that that was 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 part of a social framework that was associated with the early Galicia Haskalah. Was to associate with other maskilim, early Galician maskilim such as Nachman Krochmal, Yudelit Mises, Yitzchak Orter, Shimshin Blach, and most importantly. Uh, Yosef Perel, probably the most famous and influential of all the Galician maskilim of his generation, and he and Shear were very close, um, especially when Shear arranged for him to, you know, attain the rabbinate in Tarnopol, where Shear's uh, base was, where his school was, and along with these intellectual tendencies and social interactions came another component of Galician of his color of his day, which Shear engaged in, which was criticism of Hasidim and the Hasidic movement. Um, which which came along. It was like, you know, A plus B equals C. If you're a, a, a masculine Galicia during the early 1800s, then critique of, of Hasidism was like, that was basically part and part from Gottlob, everyone from that generation in that area, he was more in Russia, but uh, uh, engaged in that activity. Even, even criticism of certain elements of the non-Hasidic community as well, including writing and publishing pamphlets in this regard, um, 
If we think about it, it's interesting because his father-in-law, the Ktesachayshin, and many other prominent Galician rabbis of the previous generation counted themselves among the Misnagdim. So opposition to Hasidism per se in rabbinic circles was not unique. In the earlier generation, the Misnagdim were primarily from the rabbinic establishment. Brod, or Brody, and other places in Galicia were centers of opposition to the Hasidic movement in the early stages. So the next generation, simply that baton is passed to the Maskilim as the opponents of the Hasidic movement. That's, that's a certain irony that I think is sometimes overlooked. In fact, the irony with Shir is that he wrote specifically against something of the Chayz of Lublin, of his generation, and, uh, and, and the danger inherent in, in one of the teachings of the Chayz of Lublin regarding the power of the Tzaddik in regards to his, uh, in regards to halachic tradition and adherence. Um, in other words, Shir wrote an opposite, the, the Chayz was writing about the power of the Tzaddik and his influence on halacha. Um, um, uh, and and Shir was writing in opposition to that. In other words, that one must adhere to the text of the halacha, and the tzaddik of the generation has no right to change the halacha. So you have this incredible situation, and this might be the only instance that I know of where a maskil is sticking up for strict adherence to traditional halacha in opposition to a Hasidic tzaddik, who, in his opinion, he felt was not uh, because he, you know, he was coming up with these ways of, of, of halacha is flexible and it's able to be changed because of the power of the tzaddik. So it's an, it's an incredible situation. That's again, that's unique to the early generations of Ascala that you would not have later on when it's, when it's not Ascala, when it's secularization or even assimilation. Obviously, they, don't, they wouldn't be, be uh, concerned too much about halacha. But here in the, in the Ascala generations, when these people are ostensibly still observant Jews, but still uh, just to have these modernist tendencies and exposures and, and intellectual pursuits, um, so they can have that, uh, you know, wild situation where, where, where the maskil is opposing the tzaddik about halacha. Um, in any event, in 1816, it seems that he was, because of his views and because of his activities, he was placed in some sort of cherem by the rabbi of Lvov, by the local rabbi, Rabbi Yankiv Orenstein, the Yeshuas Yaakov for for the Shir's Haskalah activities, and he, uh, you know, he was married. He had a family, so he struggled to support himself for many years um, in all kinds of different uh, business pursuits. He wrote in his spare time. His writings was vast, an enormous amount of writing. He wrote biographies. He engaged in all kinds of research. He wrote books and pamphlets, and and his, he 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 took um, his research methodology seriously. In other words, he's one of the early of Jewish studies, Chochmat Yisrael. Um, and there's some sort of fancy German name that people like to throw around, but I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to bother. But Jewish studies, or Chochmat Yisrael, I do know how to pronounce. And and that is to take the the study of Judaism and its history and everything involved with it seriously and scientifically. And he's one of the early contributors to, to, to that um, in history and Poetry, he writes an encyclopedia, all kinds of Jewish studies. He writes the history of the Jews of Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia, some like unique, uh, quirky kind of things. He writes the first, lays the first research foundations to biographies of Reb Sadiagain, um, the Arach, Reb Nassim of Rome, Reb Haigain, Reb Nisim Gain, Reb Lazar Hakalir, Reb Benu Hananel. He pioneered research on the ten lost tribes, on Karaites, on the Khazars, in Hebrew grammar. 
on, on, he laid down much of the foundation of Jewish studies and their research methodology, Jewish history, medieval figures, and so much more. Really a prodigious literary output. And he has friendships with Maschilam all over Galicia and beyond in Germany, um, in Austria, and even in Italy. One of his close friends becomes Shmuel David Lizzato from the famous Lizzato family, who was one of the most well-known uh, Italian uh, Jewish intellectuals, Maschilam rabbis of that generation in uh, Padua as well. Um, uh, Yosef Perel, his close friend, the, the most famous Moscow that I mentioned, he arranges for him to uh, uh, get uh, the rabbinate in Tarnopol, which is a prominent city in, in uh, Austrian Galicia, and um, for a twofold purpose, for both, both to get, you know, because he was struggling financially for so long, she was, was uh, uh, struggling financially for so long, and the rabbinate would, would uh, give him a, a, a more stable uh, way to support his family, and also to bring in a, a masculine rabbi into the Tarnopol rabbinate. There was great opposition from traditionalist elements. They went to war, basically. Um, in, this is in conservative Hasidic Galicia. There were fights, there were governments, there were, uh, got involved protests. Even the masculine Nachman Kroch did not support um, Shear's uh, rabbinical position there because he felt it was too early. Too soon, too early. This time is not yet ripe for a masculine rabbi of a major Galician town. It, it, it's, it's a mistake. It's just going to cause fighting and in the Jewish community and it's not healthy. It's, no one's going to gain from it. And, um, and, and, and it didn't. The rabbinate uh, was unsustainable. Um, and Yosef Perel, who was his biggest supporter, who brought him in there, he dies two years later in 1839. So Shear saw that it was not working, so he left a year later after a stormy three years in the Tarnopol rabbinate. In 1840, he moves to Prague. Um, the, the rabbinate in Prague at that time almost went to another rabbi in Moscow, the Maritz Chies, or Tzvirish Chies. <laughs> it was another story. But in the end, Shear got it. So Prague was definitely looking for a more progressive rabbi. Now, Prague, during the time of Shear, had, had um, as far as traditional Jewish observance, had deteriorated significantly from the previous century when the Nadi Behuda was there. Um, and now, uh, it's, there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of secularization, there's a lot of integration, acculturation. And um, someone like Shear, who in Galicia was, you know, the traditionalist elements were so opposed to him in the rabbinate in Galicia, in, in Tarnopol, excuse me, and here in Prague, he's considered too traditional. He's too from. Um, and he starts to get, engage in polemics and fights with many of the other masculine and progressives of his day that they're going too far. With Abraham Geiger, even with Zacharia Frankel, he backs up Rav Shamshin or Fall Hirsch at some point um, against Zacharia Frankel's Darche HaMishnah when, when Frankel refuses to back down uh, from uh, for, refuses to give a clear posi- uh, a position of his belief in in uh, in Tyrami Sinai. So it, it's very interesting how in the next twenty seven years he's the rabbi till his passing is the rabbi in Prague. He he's 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 uh, engaged in polemics. He's fighting all the time um, with everyone on the right and on the left. He's in the middle of the road. The traditionalists consider him too progressive. The progressives consider him too traditionalist. He's the he's in the middle. He's this. Galician Maskil of the mid 1800s, and uh, and he's a from Maskil, and he looked like he did, like that painting said. He serves as an Orthodox observant rabbi and Jew um, in for the rest of his life, and yet he's a Maskil. So, what's that legacy? What's that? Uh, you know, the question is, what do we do with that as far as Jewish history is concerned? Lately, there's been uh, this trend to to retroactively convert. Uh, masculine from those early generations. It's been done to quite a few of them. It's been done to uh, 
Shlomo of Dubna and and uh, and Mendelafin and and uh, um, Menashe Meilia and 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 um, oh, I'm forgetting the names and a few others. I think there's even an, a more daring attempt to do it with Naftali Herzweisel, which is pretty gutsy. But the question, you know, do we need to convert them to make them from in order to be able to live with them? Because we can't live with this middle ground. It's a you know it's an anomaly in Jewish history. Or we can just leave them be uh, um, in in you know for what they were in the 19th century or 18th century. That's a big question. That's a topic for another time. We can examine some of these other early maskilim. The question is is, is if it's even possible to retroactively convert uh, a, a shear to make him you know from her because he was so prominent in Haskalah circles that it would be really difficult to uh, to um, negate all that. So we'll, we might have to live with this conundrum that Shir is, and and live with the fact that Jewish identity in the 19th century was quite dynamic, and the confrontation with the, of the Jewish community with the modern era is a fascinating process, and, and, and how they grapple with it. So this is Yehudi Geber. Uh, with Jewish History Soundbites, you can reach me at yehudatyehudigeber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.